So today I want to speak to you and continue on in our um, uh, there it is in a, a, a story about walking worthy through Ephesians chapter four. I'm going to ask God's blessing on the, on the time as we study the word and um, ask God to speak to us today to help us. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity that we can come together, Father, and study your word together. Lord, I ask that your truth, Lord Jesus, would take root in our hearts, oh God. We ask that you would bind every deceptive spirit that would try and distract us, Lord Jesus, today. Lord, we come before you and we recognize this is the most important thing that we could do all week, Father, is to sit and listen to you and to receive from you wisdom and knowledge and understanding and strength and counsel lord jesus correction lord jesus for the week we pray that you'd open our ears to hear your word uh, lord jesus touch my tongue that i may speak clearly and precisely the things that you want me to say lord jesus open the ears of those who hear that they would receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save their souls we ask this in the name of jesus and everyone said amen, amen. okay today i want to this uh, sermon i want to talk about a worthy appetite a worthy appetite now the word worthy is uh, uh, of value something that's of value and appetite is the the hunger or the the thing that we feel when we want we have an appetite our desire for food appetite means desire for food okay so a a, a worthy or an, a valued desire for food we're going to talk about today we talked last week about being separate we talked about um, the difference between or the contrast between those who are Christian and those who are not Christian. We discussed that contrast and we looked at that contrast and we, and we, and we started in verse 17 and it said, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you may not, must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Their thinking as in a Gentile is, an, is de, uh, descriptive of a non-Christian person. And he said, their thinking is futile. It means their minds uh, think of things that are not true. He says their, their minds are filled with things that are depraved or perverse. And he says their minds are frail and lack moral strength. He says, but Christians' minds are different to that. Christian minds, therefore, think on things that are true. Christian minds think on things that are morally uh, uh, good and that are... Uh, correct and their minds are not weak with regard to moral strength they are strong with regard to moral strength uh, ephesians uh, chapter 4 verse 18 says and they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of god because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts so he's describing the unsaved mind again he says they're darkened it means to cover it means to obscure it means to hide their minds are hidden by Satan. Satan actually tries to, mind, uh, to cover the, the, the mind of the unbeliever so he cannot see the truth of God's word. I mean, if you see God's truth and you understand God's truth, then you will know the truth and the truth, the Bible says, will set you free. So the devil doesn't want you to understand God's truth. He doesn't want you to know what God's truth is about. So he will cloud it. He will shade your mind. He will block it out so you can't see the truth of God's word. If you're reading God's word and you're trying to understand God's word and there's distractions in the room while you're reading God's word, you know that those distractions are trying to keep you out of God's word. 
So you might have to say, well, I'm going to find a place where I'm not distracted when I'm reading God's word. If you start to think about God's word and you start to pray and distraction come in and people come running through the room and, and, or you get a, a thought that says, why don't you listen to the news or why don't you go and do something else? Those things are all distractions by the enemy to try and co- hide and cover the word of God so you can't see the word of God. All of those things are there designed by Satan to take you out, not to bring you in to the kingdom of God. He says they're separated from the life of God because of the, because of the ignorance in them due to the hardening of their heart. And the word separated means they don't have intimate fellowship with God. And you find that generally people who don't have intimate fellowship with God don't necessarily have intimate fellowship with each other either because God brings us closer together. I can have intimate fellowship with somebody, a brother and a sister in Christ because God keeps us close without bringing harm into the, pro, into the, into the relationship. Whereas that sort of thing doesn't occur in the world. People don't tend to get close to one another because they keep each other apart because they keep the walls of protection up. Jesus helps us bring our walls down and, and lets us have true intimate fellowship with him and with others. The ignorance talks about moral blindness. The lights are switched off for those who are unsaved. But God has turned the lights on for us who are saved. We can see, we, we know God gives us spiritual vision. He says, and they're hard, they have a hardening of their heart. And they, that means their skin has, if you have a, a callus, their skin is hard. It's like you can't feel through the skin. And a calloused heart is, is a heart that has gone hard. It doesn't feel anymore. It doesn't feel any care anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. They, they say, oh, whatever, whatever. It's whatever. I don't care. I don't care. I don't feel about it anymore. And that's what unsaved people are like. They don't care anymore. It doesn't matter to them anymore. And uh, God brings a new heart into us and a new sense of feeling and a new sensitivity into our lives. So we looked at that. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. I think the NIV says, with a continual lust for more. And I I, I like that idea that it's a never-ending thing with unsaved people. You know, you start them somewhere. We start when we're unsaved. We started somewhere. We're looking for something. We're looking for life. We're looking for happiness. We're looking for excitement. We're looking for sensuality. We start on it. We get a little bit. That's really nice. I like that. We want some more. We want some more. So we get some more. And it's really nice. We're feeling really happy now. But you know, there's never an end to it, the desire. We have a continual lust for more. That's why addictions get hold of you. Because when one drink was enough then two drinks wasn't ever enough and then an endless drink wasn't ever enough and so we have to start taking drugs and drugs the first shot was nice and the second shot just wasn't enough and we have to have more and more and more of the same things those who are sex addicts you know the first time it's nice and then no no we want more we want more we want more until you can't get enough of it with a continual lust form it never ends and yet these people, they lost their sensitivity. They're callous in their hearts. They've given themselves over. And the word giving over to is like giving yourself into somebody's hands for them to control you. Imagine that. Imagine that if, if, if Jenny were to say, okay, I'm going to give myself into this person's arms for them to control me. And that's what we do when we follow after sin. We follow after, you, you've got to serve someone you either serve God or you serve Satan. And they have, unsaved people have given themselves into Satan's hands and says, okay, whatever you want, I'll do for you. Whatever you want. 
In fact, when we come to Jesus, we come out of under his control, out of his ownership, and we step into Christianity and we become slaves of Jesus. And no longer is it, I'll do whatever the devil wants me to do. It's now, Jesus, I will do what you want me to do. There is never any place in the equation where we are in control of ourselves by being the master of our own lives. We are either allowing Satan to master us or we are giving ourselves to Jesus and let Jesus master us. You're either going to be controlled by the devil or you're going to be controlled by God. This idea of giving over is like, okay, whatever the devil wants me to do, I'm just going to give myself, I'm going to have some fun. And the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of pleasure, whatever it takes to have fun and pleasure, I'm just giving myself to it. And they are abandoning themselves. It doesn't matter. You say, why do some people do some risky things? Because they have given themselves over to it with a continual lust for more. It just doesn't end. And the idea of sensuality is unbridled lust. Unbridled lust. For those who, who knows what a bridle is? Who doesn't know what a bridle is? Okay? So you've got a horse. I could draw a horse's head, but I, but I haven't got It's over there. You've got a horse. And when you want, climb onto the back of a horse, you have to put a bridle in its mouth. Otherwise, when it runs away, you'll be thrown off. And a bridle it goes through its mouth. Uh-uh. And then it's chained around here, around its head, so that, and it's got straps this way. That's called a bridle. When that's in the horse's mouth, you can pull it this way, and the horse's head goes that way. When you pull it this way, the horse's head goes that way. When you kick the horse and it starts to run... So you're running on the horse and you, you want to turn the corner. You pull the bridle and the horse's head turns like that. And of course the horse goes around the corner for you. That's the bridle. So if you're unbridled, that means you're a wild stallion and you're running and you take the bridle. Nothing is going to control you. There's no one going to steer you. Unbridled means I'm going to do what There are no boundaries. I'm going to do whatever the devil tells me to do. You're bridled, all right. The unbridled is bridled by the bridle of Satan. But you're not bridled by God. And so then you're unbridled. This is what the world is like. So we have two pictures. We have the world on one side. This is contrasted to the Christian who lives a a controlled life, a bridled life, a sensitive life, a life where God is actually leading them and guiding them. So we want to look at the next part of this passage from verse 20 onwards. It says, that, however, is not the way you learn of life you learned. That, however, is not the way of life you learned, he said. So Paul is actually stopping there and he's saying, you know, Ephesians, he says, now I've just shown you what the unsaved is like. He said, but that's not what you learned when you got saved. So if you go to somewhere and you see people and they say, oh, we're Christians, and then you see them acting like the world, doing what the world does, Paul is saying they, they didn't learn that from Jesus. They learned that from somewhere, but they didn't learn that from Jesus. Because when you were born in Jesus, Jesus taught you a different way. And then he goes down and tells you exactly what the way he taught you was. He says, he says that when you heard about Christ, you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And here's the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on your new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what he's saying there is this an action of clothing and disrobing. When we get saved... We have to take something off. There's got to be a change that takes place. 
And then we have to put something on. And the word put off and the word put on is the word to disrobe. I say, if I am going to disrobe, this is I'm taking this off now. This is taking off the old. And to be renewed in the spirit of my mind is now to take on a new mind, not to clean up the old mind, but to take on a new mind, to be having a new mind in place. So we have the mind of Christ. So we're replacing our old mind with the mind of Christ. And then he says, put on Christ, which means to sink into clothing. So it's a case of putting on. And I don't know how you get up in the morning. Do you expect the clothes just to fall on you? When you get up in the morning, do you stand there and say, and then it all just appears? Putting on requires some sort of action. And in my place, I have to get up and I have to find my clothes. I have to look in my cupboard and sort around. I don't need to put that on anyway, do I? But anyway, but there's an effort. There's an effort involved in the process. You have to select the clothes that you want to wear. For some of you, it's a little bit longer than others. Like, you know, some of you can say, oh, I'd like to wear that to work. And then just say, No, I'll take that one off and I'll put that away and I'll wear that one. Now, how many times do you put on a shirt? Ben, how many times do you put on a shirt? Once. That's the bloke's idea. Once. You just pick the shirt, you put it on once. For a lady, it's maybe two or three times, maybe four times, just to make sure it all goes well, make sure it all looks nice. It's got to be... So there's an effort involved in putting on and seeking on into clothing. You have to think about it. You have to decide what you want to do. You have to decide what you want to wear. You have to look at what you're doing, and there's an effort involved. You cannot put on Christ without effort being involved. There's an essential quality of life you have to recognize to get dressed in the morning requires effort to get dressed in jesus requires effort you have to actually put some effort into it taking something off requires effort too i don't know well, i work sometimes and i get very dirty so my dirt my jeans are dirty my shoes are dirty my socks are dirty my shirt is dirty my singlet is dirty my underpants and everything is dirty okay when i get inside it's an effort to get it all off you know there's dirt all on it i have to actually try and cl- i have to, there's an effort to get up there's an effort to get the, the the stuff off that you shouldn't be wearing if you're clothed or robed in that which is unrighteous, don't think that that's just going to fall off, like shake it off. You're going to have to take it off. There's an effort to take it off. You're going to have to start to pull that stuff off and think, you know, this is going to take some time to get this off. How many robes did you put on there? You know, how many, how many jackets have you got on there? How many wrong attitudes have you got on there? How many wrong ideas have you, have you clothed yourself in there when you were in the world? How many bad ideas were you putting there and kept on putting there over and over again every day, clothing yourself with the wrong ideas? And Jesus serves you the light and says, that's all wrong. That whole idea is wrong. Oh, just take it off then. Yeah, you know, and how many times do you have to take it off before it's gone? How many times do you have to take it off before it's gone? You have to take it off every time that you find it's there again. You have to take it off because sometimes it just comes back when you're asleep. Wake up in the morning and all of a sudden you've got, where did that get there? Take it off again and put the other stuff back on again. Since you are taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, that's the old man, the old corrupt man, the dead person that was there before Jesus uh, saved you, which is being corrupted and that which is destroyed, being destroyed by deceitful desires. Those desires have to be your emotions. That's the strong emotions that you feel. 
Life would be very plain if no one felt emotion, hey? If everything was just smooth, no emotion. We are emotional beings. And being emotional means that we are real. So when you offend somebody, they feel real pain. When you make them happy, they feel real joy. We feel sad when something sad takes place. We have feelings of affliction, feelings of abandonment, feelings of kindness, feelings of mercy, lots of different emotions. And those emotions tend to tell us something about what's happening in life. They, they communicate to us what's happening around us and what we feel about what's happening around us. What we think is our cognitive process, but what we feel, and this word desires, is that strong word for strong emotion, strong sensual emotion. And, and the deceitful thing about strong sensual emotion is that, that sometimes it tells you the wrong thing. It doesn't tell you the right thing, it tells you the wrong thing. But I feel it, you know? So the scripture that Liz was speaking this morning about, she was, she was saying, um, shout it aloud, you know, God is going to be you know, pouring himself out toward you. And then the Israelites said something like, but we are forsaken. Why would they say that? Well, they felt that. They felt that they were forsaken. So they said that they were forsaken. What was the truth? Was the truth that they were forsaken? No, we know the pro- verse previously that, that God had said that he, he hadn't forsaken them, that he was pouring himself out to them, that they weren't forsaken. And so sometimes your emotions don't tell you the truth. They're an indication of just how you are feeling or how you see what's happening. So, so here's a little picture we call him Fred. This is Fred. Fred's you and me on the inside. So this is what happens. It says here, Therefore put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So after he's told us to clothe ourselves in Jesus and put on this Jesus. Then he tells us how to live this life. He says, therefore, putting away lying. He says, that's one of the things that's going to cover you up, lying. Lying is going to be a cloak that you put on yourself. You know, it's amazing. People who learn to lie, lie more and more and more. It's true. Once you start telling a lie and you get used to telling a lie, then it's easy to tell lies more and more and more because it just helps you get through life because it's easy to escape scrutiny by lying. So Fred's going to show us exactly what it's like. So this is Fred, and he says, speaking the truth. Now, there's two kinds of lies. There's the lie that is intentionally meant to deceive. So I might say to Olga, I'm going to lie to her, and I'll tell her, you know, you're looking... um, fairer today than you were yesterday your skin has seemed to got whiter is that a lie yeah, I mean she's the same as she always was so I tell her a lie now that's an act of deception now if she was like a Filipino who thought that having a, a lighter skin was better than having a darker skin then that would be called flattery wouldn't it I would be flattering her. I would be saying, you're looking fairer today. And she would be saying, oh, maybe my skin is going lighter. And then it's a flattery to her. So it's a, a, a lying. For me, it's an act of deceiving. I am attempting to deceive her. 
So it's a lie. It's, a, it's an untruth. Then there is the untruthful p- profession. So there's the willful act to deceive. Like I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to tell you a lie because I wanted to deceive you. And then there is the untruthful profession, which is like the Israelites. They felt emotionally that God had abandoned them. So they professed, he has forsaken me. Because they felt that God has... They weren't trying to deceive anybody. The thing that came out of their mouth, the profession that came out of their mouth was untrue. So there's two kinds of lying, if you like. Two kinds of untruth. It says speaking the truth to your neighbor. There's two kinds of ways. You can, you can deceive your neighbor or you can speak an untruth to your neighbor. You notice you can get those two. Have you got those two ideas? So you can be willfully deceptive or you can say a thing that God doesn't say. And those things, so you have one on one side, you have lies to act and deceive and you have untruths. The, the, the correct is truth telling, being honest with integrity. It's like telling the truth all the time. And then the profession of God's truth in the face of negative emotions. So what does it look like in practice? So here's a person, Fred's feeling Shame and guilt. He's, he, I'm feeling really guilty and shame. Now, why would you feel guilt and shame? You feel guilt and shame because you've done something wrong. Uh, the guilt and shame comes because the Holy Spirit convicts you and convicts you that you've done something wrong. So you're feeling guilt and shame. Okay, now the lie, this is the deception. This is what the lie would say. It wasn't me, someone else did it. There's an act of deception there going on. And the truth would be, in response to the lie, would be, it was me, I'm sorry, and will you forgive me? This is simple. Now, what's your response? You know, Paul says, if you're a Christian and you don't want to live like the devil, he says, if you want to clothe yourself, he says, start clothing yourself with truth first. The very first thing you want to start doing is sink yourself into the truth of God's word, sink yourself into truth, and when it comes to telling the truth, Tell the truth to people around you. Be honest. Have integrity in your heart. Don't seek to tell them lies. And when they confront you, don't hide your sin under a cloak and tell a lie because that's what the world does. Everybody in the world tells lies. If lying comes easy to you, you need to shake yourself and recognize there's a garment on you that is not what God wants. You need to speak truth to your neighbor. You need to tell the truth to your neighbor. If they say, you've done something wrong, say, oh, yes, I did it. Tell the truth. I did it. So how many else, how many other people did something wrong here? Put your hand up if you've done something wrong in your life. All those who have never done anything wrong in their life, put your hand up. Well, there's nobody here. So everybody's done something wrong. Well, it's not such a big thing to tell the truth then. Just tell the truth. I did something wrong. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Easy, fix. So here is speaking the truth now in untruthful talk. I feel abandoned and I feel lonely. Well, if I was being untruthful about it, then I would probably have in my profession something like this. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm going down the garden to eat some worms. I would say, I'm horrible, I'm, lo- I'm unlovable. 
That would be an untruthful statement. Everybody has deserted me. Everybody hates me. That's untruthful. I know sometimes you feel like that's the case. I know sometimes you feel alone. I know sometimes you feel abandoned. I know sometimes you feel that's the case. But the truthful statement is not that you are hated and alone in this world. That truthful statement is, and this is the thing that you should say, this is the thing that should come out of your mouth, the truthful statement is, no matter what happens to me, if all desert me, God loves me still. And he said he would never leave me, nor would he ever forsake me, where he would say, the Lord would help me in times of trouble. That's the truthful statement. So Paul is actually saying here, when you start living your Christian life, he says, listen, determined, he said, to be truth, not lie. Don't deceive. And when you speak, let the professions of your lips be according to the word of God, not according to what you're, you're feeling. What happens is in our lives, we, we feel anxious and fearful. The emotions stir up inside of us and we, we get upset, you know, financial strain, money strain, whatever it is. And the very next thing we get when we get all those deceitful desires and deceitful emotions go, we, we say, I'm doomed, it's terrible, I'm going to go, I'm going to fail. And that's, that's what controls our life. We get this negative emotion and we say the untruthful thing and the untruthful thing begins to control our lives. Your emotions are not an indication of truth. Your emotions are an indication of what you are feeling only. The truth is separate to your emotions. The truth is separate to your emotions. Do you understand? Listen, I know because I talk to many people and when I talk to them, I see tears coming out their faces. I, I see their mouth go shaky. I see their chin nipple go there. And I see sadness all over their face and in their heart. And I listen to their words. There's nothing wrong with emotion. And to feel pain is it's human and it's good. God feels pain. It's even godly sometimes to feel pain. I mean, if God is not pleased with sin and if you feel pain about sin, then you have a righteous soul that's tormented like Lot. He feels pain when evil is around him. Pain is okay. It's okay to feel miserable. Everybody give yourself permission to feel miserable. I'm serious. You can feel miserable. But listen, in your misery, speak truth. Not lie. Misery is not an opportunity for you to speak lies to yourself and to other people. Misery is an opportunity for you to acknowledge the truth in your misery. And that's hard because everything inside you wants to say the wrong thing, but faith would require you to say the right thing. Are you hearing me? Speak truth to your neighbor, it says. Speak truth to your neighbor. Don't deceive them. Speak the truth. I'm feeling sad. It's great to say and sit with somebody who's saying, I'm feeling sad. I have pain on the inside. I'm feeling disheartened. I'm feeling you know, ashamed. I'm feeling whatever you're feeling. It's good. It's okay to say those things. It's not faithless to say that you're feeling grief on the inside. But when you say those things, correct those things with this. 
Jesus is the source of my strength. And I can overcome this thing. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I can feel this pain deep down inside. I can cry because I'm sad and hurt. I can be you know, wounded in the inside. But it's okay to be wounded on the inside. And you can empathize with my pain. You can feel with me if you want to. But let us both say the right thing, not the wrong thing. You know what happens? We get together. You want to see my pain, Brother Noel? my pain and he says you know mark i got a pain just like that and we can compare pains your pain is bigger than my pain yeah that would be right so we sit there and then comes the test we've sat there and we shared our heart we shared our pain what will we do next will we choose to blame somebody for the pain well we could quite easily do well you know so-and-so caused me this pain they caused me that pain too well, aren't they bad, wicked, and villainous and need to be severely blamed and punished? And let's just pray against them now that God will destroy them because they're so bad, wicked, and villainous. They need to go to hell. Wrong choice. You see, you can have the pain on the inside and when you talk to somebody and they say, well, we've got common pain, we can, I can feel with you about that. Right choice is truth speaking. Not deceptive talk, untruth talk. You know, we should pray for that person. They obviously don't get it, do they, that they're actually wounding the body of Christ when they're doing this. Let's, let's hold them up and, and ask God to help them to come to light. That's a truthful statement. Let's ask Jesus to minister to their lives right now and to strengthen them. They're obviously going through some difficult time. That's truthful talk. You see, you get choices. Every time you face emotion, every time you face, you get choices. These deceitful lusts, these deceitful desires, they are deceitful because they are trying to move you in the wrong direction. You will feel them till the day you die. You will feel the deceitful lusts. They're there, but you escape the corruption that is in the world through evil desires by taking hold of the promises of God. That's how you get rid of them. You take the word of God and say, even though I feel this way, even though this is something that I feel, what I am going to do is I'm going to take the word of God and I'm going to make the word of God my profession. I'm going to speak to my neighbor in truth. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to those who are in need. Let no corrupt Word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearer. And so here we have, we have truth walking. Self-focus says, you know, you don't have something. You sell yourself a lie. God's not going to provide it for me. I better get it for myself. You know, I don't have it. It's unfair that I don't have it. You know what I'll do? I'll steal it. That's, so that's not truth Walking, that's untruth walking. Because truth says God supplies all of your need in Christ Jesus and that you have everything that you need for life and godliness and, in, and your life is in him and he's looking after it. And he says, and you bring him a request for the Lord. And he says, if you seek wholeheartedly the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to you. He knows he will provide. You know he provide for your every need. Every need he'll provide for. That's what the truth says. So why would you steal? It's an untruth. So put in practice. So it's an untruth walking. So truth walking looks like 
we're not going to steal anymore because I don't need to steal now because I'm not going to get for myself what God hasn't given me. I'm going to just wait for God to provide for me. So I don't need to steal. And I don't need to talk bad. I don't need to have unedifying speech. When things are not the way I very much like them to be, I don't have to get frustrated and start saying all, all manner of things that are unhelpful. So somebody says something to you that is hurtful, what are you going to say? Something bad back at them? Shoot those darts out. You know you hurt me, so I'm going to wound you back. I'm going to shoot something back in your heart that's going to really hurt you. You said that to me, so I'm going to say this to you. You know, something just comes to my mind. I'm just wondering whether I should... Oh, no. <laughs> Not on Mother's Day. <laughs> there, I just exercise discretion, you see? Not to say those words. Not that we're, they weren't harmful, they were just a little bit. This is what we do in marriage. This is what we do in life. We say things that we don't mean to say, but we say things in retaliation. We use our words as sticks and stones to hurt somebody rather than allowing the grace of God to be on our lips. And I'm probably the worst offender. Ask Jenny. I'm pretty bad, hey? <laughs> I, I just crossed the line then, I think. <laughs> Did you see the way she shakes her head? Isn't that scary? <laughs> And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, clamor is shouting, yelling and screaming at each other. Clamor. You know what a clamor is? Ah, shut up. I don't want to hear what you're saying. That's what clamor is. You don't tell me to shut up. I tell you. I tell you. Don't you point your finger at me? That's clamor. But you wouldn't know that. None of you actually experience that in life, do you? And evil speaking, put it away from you with all malice. Malice is that um, desire to hurt somebody. If I have malice, I want to hurt you. You with your white hair and everything sitting there in your fast clothes. I want to hurt you. You know, Say things that would hurt them. That's malice. Unforgiveness in your life. Bitterness in your life. Things that you've, you're holding on to that you won't give up. Things that you just hang on to. Things that you, you hold on to. They produce malice. You know, you want to hurt somebody back because you're hurt inside, you know. And because then they come near you, so you shoot back at them. You shoot words that will hurt. That's malice. It says, and be kind to one another. Tender-hearted forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. And here's this lovely tender-hearted thing again that Liz was talking about. God is tender-hearted for you, toward you, you know, and because God is tender-hearted toward you, you can afford to be tender-hearted toward other people. In the end of the exercise, God loves us. So, so here's relationship living. Grieving your Holy Spirit looks like this. It looks like bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking. You see, he's making these contrasts all the way through. He's putting these contrasts together. What does it look like if you're not a Christian? Well, your life will be full of bitterness. What does bitterness sound like? It sounds like this horrible thing inside somebody that keeps on coming up all the time. Whenever you sit with them, they want to tell you the story again that happened to them. That person did that to me, and I'll never forgive them for that. That's bitterness. That's not part of the Christian vocabulary. 
It's an unchristian person. If you're unsaved, we would expect to hear bitterness. But if you're a Christian, the contrast is no bitterness. What's the difference to bitterness? I get a grapefruit from the tree now. I, I peeled it for my daughter and I put it in her cup and I said, here's the grapefruit she wanted. I, the, they're not quite, they're just almost ripe. And, and my, my daughter, she sups on the grapefruit. Oh, that's bitter. And then she gets a permanent. Mm. <laughs> she looks like this all the time. For half an hour she's looking like this. It's bitter. What's the difference in, to bitterness? Sweet. Sweet. So you have to put sugar on it. Did I put sugar on it for her? No. No. But sugar is different to bitterness. It's sweet. So Christians should be sweet. And non-Christians are bitter. Ask your life. Is there shades of grey in God? Is it black or white or grey? Now this is the problem. Most of us live a life of grey. We think that grey is normal. We think that grey is acceptable. We think that grey is something that is okay. We think that grey is just something that is normal for life. You know, you can't expect to be perfect. You just have to be what you are. And so Christianity becomes indistinct. You can't tell a Christian from a non-Christian by the way they live. Oh, you can maybe tell a Mormon from a non-Mormon because he wears a white shirt, a tag that says something on the thing, and he wears those pants, you know. And every time you see a Mormon come through, you know a Mormon because he's dressed differently. He dresses the outside. But Jesus says, our righteousness is not a dress on the outside. It's not clothes that we are going to wear that make us right. The dressing is a dress of character. And he says, and there should be a distinct character difference between those who are saved and those who are unsaved. And then he's gone through this whole chapter telling us about the contrast. From 17 to the end of the chapter, he says, there's a contrast, there's a contrast, saved, unsaved, saved, unsaved, saved, unsaved. Why is he doing that to us? Why does he do that to us? Are we dumb? Are we silly? He's doing it because he's reminding us that if we forget that, it becomes inconclusive. People look at us and they say, oh, are you Christian or not? And there's no distinct difference. The way I live should mark my life out as being one that is born of God. The way I act in hard times should mark my life out that is one that is born of God. I can feel the pain. I can feel the grief. I can feel the the utter despair. I can feel all the things that everybody else feels, but my response will not be as everybody else responds. My response will be different. Why? Because I am born differently of a different father. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because if we live in this shade of grey, then I'm not confident that you're on the right side. You might think you are, but if you're grieving the Holy Spirit all the time, you probably aren't. And you need to understand that living right is essential because you are born right. You, might, you need to... 
It says in Philippians chapter 2, it says, in verse 12, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So you're born again on the inside. You have a new man on the inside, a new woman on the inside, new on the inside. You have to let that new person now come and express themselves out of your life. Which means that you're going to do differently. You're going to think differently. You're going to respond differently. And if you're having trouble responding differently, then you need to look at something. You need to look at your appetite. Because your outcome is a result of your input. What you put in determines what comes out of your life. So profoundly. I can't expect you to walk well if you have not learned well. I can't expect you to talk well if you don't know what the Word of God says. I can't expect you to live well if you haven't been shown well what it looks like. But Jesus was the perfect expression of God in the flesh and showed us how to live. His life is a pattern for us to follow. And when he spoke, he spoke words that were life and that gave life and that cleansed us. And when his words came into our lives, they cleansed us and made us new. And he says, if you take these words, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He says, abide in me and abide in my word and you'll ask anything and it shall be if you hang in God's word. See, input is, is so important. But we live in a really corrupt world. I want to tell you a story, and this is I'll close with a story, about Daniel and his three mates. If you go to the first chapter of Daniel, you read this, you read, in the third year of the king of Jericho, of the reign of Jericho, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, now Jerusalem speaks to us of being Christian. Those who lived in Jerusalem are Christians. This is a type, if you like. And Nebuchadnezzar is the type of the evil one. He's a type of the devil. He is besieging or he's taking hold, he's taking captive Jerusalem. This is how the devil takes Christians captive. So what he does, then the king ordered Aspenas, chief of the, uh, the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and, nobil- and the nobility. So this is what they did. They would come and they would besiege a city and then they would take people from the city, noble prince sons and noble people, and they would bring them back to the center of King Nebuchadnezzar's palace, right into the heart of where the bad stuff is. Now the point of the exercise is told us very clearly in the next verse that we look at. Children whom was no blemish, they were, they were meant to be good kids, well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had the ability to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. So this is the wisdom of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you know, I want to take over the world, but to take over the world, I've got to change the way people think. Because if I can't change the way they think, then when I put them back in their country where they live, they will rebel against me and kill me. So what I've got to do is uh, when I conquer a land, I've got to turn them into Chaldeans. I can't let them stay Christian. I've got to turn them into pagan. 
So what I do is I get their best men, who are the best men, those who are educated, those who have got some intelligence, those who understand science, those who have fine upstanding. They're the noble ones like Josh and like Misha and like Claudia and like Ruth, the ones who, like, like Adolphin and Michael, fine upstanding young people. Let's take these fine upstanding people, bring them, Olga, and bring them now into the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to teach them the ungodly ways. Of why were, well, they're the leaders of the next generation. They're the leaders of the next, they're the next politicians. They're the next leaders of the next generation. What we want to do is we want to corrupt their minds so that the input is just like we want it to be and then we'll put them back out there again and then they will take the place and keep the place honest so it keeps serving us. That was the mentality. That's how the... The Babylonians did it. That's what they did. It's a type of what's happening now. Think about this. You're, you're here in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. This is the Satan's world. The God of this age is ruling over this place. God is ruling over your life, but you're a Jew, but you're in captivity. You're in Babylon now. This is Babylon. This is the West. This is the worst. And the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, now is trying, bring the fine young ones to me. Bring them to me now. I want to teach them how to talk. I want to teach them how to think. I want to teach them how to respond to life. I want them to be Chaldeans. I want them to be pagan. So he takes Christian young people. I'm talking to you young people now. This is the battle, your mind. Daniel... And three young princes, along with others, all got taken to Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And what does it tell us there? Children, the, the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank. So nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof, they might stand before the king. So he says, you know, he was very kind to them. Come, he says, come, sit down at my table. This is the king's food. They ate at the king's table. Well, that would make you feel good. Imagine that. How many would you like to go and sit and eat a meal at Julia Gillard's table? Oh, it doesn't work, does it, when you do that? No, that didn't work at all, did it? But that's what I'm saying. Well, just imagine somebody, a noble person, somebody who you, you know, you know, somebody who you think is, is really high standing, but you know, they're not Christian. And they come and sit, sit at my table. And they say, you know what? You don't have to pay for a thing, Olga. You know what? I'm going to provide all the meat and I'm going to provide all the drink. It's all there for you. Help yourself. And we're going to do this continuously. You're going to live here with me for three years. This is about the time that you take to go through university. I'm going to live here for three years. And in this process of living here for three years, I'm going to teach you. And I'm going to teach you to talk the language of the Chaldeans. You're going to understand the things that are great and noble that have brought us to this great place of power. See, we have great power here now. We are in the place of great power. You are sitting at our tables as our guests. And we are going to feed you our meat and our drink. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. 
Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And so he actually said, Hey, my mates and I, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though that wasn't their names, that was the names that were given. They had three other names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, he was given the name Belteshazzar. They're all worldly names. So what the world knows you as and what God knows you as is a different thing, hey? You go stand out in the world and like, uh, you're funky one. Get down and funk, girl, you know? It's like, have fun. If that's what the world is saying to you, they're putting a different identity on you. The world got to put a different identity on you. They say, Josh, you're this sort of person who's, and they'll put an identity on you. And you are, the, do I live that identity or do I live to my God-given identity? What is my identity? Who am I? What's the world saying about you? What's the, what's the name the world's given you? Are you going to live under that and say, oh, that's my name? Or are you going to hang on to your godly origin and, and recognize that you're born of a godly seed? Hang on to your, your family or origin in God. Or you're going to get a name given to you that's not the name that you should be having. So they got given different names, but the four of them, that's Daniel, who was the first one, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decided that they were not going to eat from the king's table. They weren't going to eat the sacred meats or the special meat. The king's table was obviously bought up. that They take the food, and the food was sacrificed food. You know, they offered to the king Baal, or to the, to the god Baal, they'd offer up the sacrifices and they'd take the meat from the sacrifice and they'd make it into you know, to food. And so they refused to eat that meat that was offered to pagan gods. They said, we're not going to touch that stuff. We're not going to go there. We're not going to do that. Now, God changed the heart of the guy who was looking after them and, and, and gave him favor. He said, okay. He says, give me 10 days. Let me eat vegetables for 10 days and that's what they, they ate seed or pulse which is vegetables and seeds and water for 10 days he says if after 10 days eating just this vegetables and seed and water we look shabby then you know you can do whatever you want they didn't agree to eat the men's food they'd probably kill them because they refused to eat it but they said whatever but he said okay 10 days after 10 days they look good they look better than the others. So he agreed. He said, okay, because you have decided that the input is different and because the input is different, then the outcome is different and because you decided to stay with you, you look good now. You look smart. You look, you look nice. He said, we're going to let you do that for the whole three years. Notice that. Notice that. They decided that even though they were in the middle of the king of the, de- of, of the devil's palace, even though they sent it right in Satan's throne room, that they were not going to eat Satan's table. They decided that we're going to turn that off and they were only going to sup on what God was wanting them to sup on, the word of God and his spirit. They only wanted to hang in there. That was it. That's our food. We're going to just stay with God. Keep our difference. Now we know that lots and lots of kids were taken. But the Bible doesn't mention any of the others because none of the others decided not to eat of the king's table. They, they're not, we're told a lot of them were gathered and they all came there. So they had a whole lot of kids there. But only four decided not to eat. They're the only ones we mentioned. 
All the others had dropped into oblivion. We don't know what happened to them. They dropped into oblivion. Only four. Only four. And it says at the end of that time, in verse 20 it says, And in all matters of wisdom and understanding, the king inquired about them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and all the astrologers that were in the realm. That's the, because they controlled the input, the output was perfect. The next chapter tells of an incredible thing that took place. The, dream, the king had an incredibly uh, disturbing dream. And he pull, pulls all his wise people together. And he says, here's the test now. If you say you hear God, what was my dream? And what was the interpretation of it? Imagine somebody asking you, it's Brad, so I had a dream last night. Can you tell me what my dream was? And can you tell the meaning of my dream? Well, how many people would like that sort of a challenge? That's a bit scary, isn't it? Well, the astrologers and all the wise men of the land said, you can't, you can't tell us that, king. That's, but there was no one here who was able to. This is the big test now. There's no one here that was able to tell you that. You know, the king says, well, you know what? If you can't tell me the dream, and he says, and you can't tell me the meaning, I'm going to cut you up in pieces now because you are lying to me. He says, you said you know God and you hear God and you are lying to me because you, God would know the dream because God is God. You can't tell me the dream. If you can't tell me the meaning, I'm going to start cutting you up in pieces. So they said, we can't do that. We can't. And they started cutting them up in pieces. And they came to Daniel's place where Daniel lived to take him out to cut him up because no one was telling the king the dream. And Daniel said, just wait on before you get that knife out, sort out to chop me up in pieces. Just wait on, he says, and I will inquire of the Lord. When you need to have something in God, you need to have it. You can't get it if you haven't put the input in. You can't rise up to the occasion if you haven't got what. You've got to spend time putting the right stuff in to get the right stuff out. You've got to live like this holy God's for God to speak to you. Everybody else playing the game. Everybody else eating the king's food. Everybody else partying. Doing it. They need something from God. Do they have anything from God? Got nothing from God. Why? You don't get it from God unless you eat the right stuff. So here we have the four. And they're going to be cut up in pieces. And then God says to Aaron, this is the dream that he had. God tells Daniel the dream. And not only does he tell him the dream, he tells him the meaning of the dream. And right at that point of time, right then, the difference is seen between light and darkness. The difference is seen between godly and ungodly. Right at that point of time, because of the input, what did they eat for three years? What did they drink for three years? Why did they stay separate? Because separation kept them in contact with God. Listen, young people, you're going to go for three years. If you're going to the university now, you're going to go for three to four years, some of you even longer, into the throne room of Satan where he wants to teach you Chaldean. What are you going to do? Eat it all up? Or hang on to the word of God. You're in school now. You go through high school. What are they teaching in high school? Well, they want to teach you Chaldean. They want to teach you about the origins of life through evolution. They want to teach you about the facts of global warming. They want to teach you all the nonsense out there. They want to teach you everything that's not truth. 
What are you going to do? You're going to sit there and eat off the king's table and drink off the king's table and come down and challenge you know, God and say, well, you know, God, I don't believe in God anymore because the king's table. This is what I learned at the king's table. What are you going to do? This is a picture. This is a picture that tells us very clearly your input produces the output. If you keep feeding on the media, if you keep feeding on TV, if you keep feeding on the rot, then what will come out will be rot. There will be no distinct difference between you or God. The question is, why is it that I am grey? Why am I grey? Look at your diet. That will tell you why you're grey. I ought to be white or black. Jesus says, I would rather have you hot or cold. But if you are grey, if you are lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Why am I grey? Why am I lukewarm? Look at your diet. What are you eating? Have you decided to eat from the devil's table? Or have you chosen to step back from the table and say, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to get my nourishment and my refreshment. I'm going to eat of Jesus. I'm going to drink of Jesus. I'm going to go to his word. I'm going to find out the meaning of it in his word. I'm going to go to God's word for the meaning of life. What have you decided to eat? Because it's coming out in the color of your skin. What you eat will be displayed in the way you live. What you eat will be expressed in the way that you interact with others. What you eat will make you a liar or a truth teller. What you eat affects your life. Where are you today? Where are you today? You sort of struggle with the word of God and oh, just it's not it's a boring mark, you know. It requires effort. Yeah, I know. I was never a good reader. I just find it hard to read. I know. I would rather if it was I'd rather if it was visual. I'd rather if it's something yeah, yeah, but you can get the word of God in visual and you can get the word of God on audio and you can get the word of God you know, just to make an effort. You can find another way of putting it in if you don't want to read it. You can read it you can read it while somebody's reading it to you. That would help. You can watch it while somebody's reading it to you. That would help. There's lots and lots of ways to get it in there, but are you wanting to get it in there? Do you want it in your life? Because what you eat is like garlic. If you eat garlic at night time, garlic will come out the next day. It comes, if you drink alcohol at night time, then the next day, you know those who drink alcohol at night time, it comes out their skin in the daytime. What you eat comes out. Input equals output. Ask yourself a question. What's my appetite like? Is it a worthy appetite? Am I hungry and thirsty for God? Amen? Let's stand up, shall we?
Father, we recognize right now that you brought us to a place of challenge. Lord, that uh, our life is not a place where we can just coast along without being challenged because you are a God who loves us. And as a father and a mother would challenge the life of children, Father, you challenge us. You bring to us opportunity, Lord Jesus, for change, opportunity to grow, opportunity to be different. You bring for us truth, not lies. You bring to us light, not darkness, Lord. You bring to us strength, not weakness. You bring to us a table that is furnished with your rich word, Father, and your spirit, O God. And Lord, we are offered another table that is off this world, that is full of all the corruptness of this world, Father. Lord, we have eaten of both tables and we are sick. Lord, we ask you that you would help us to cleanse ourselves from that which is not of you and to make our table a table of bread of the word of God. Lord, and that your Holy Spirit would refresh us in this. I ask this in Jesus' name. As you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if God has been speaking to you about the consumption of your life, what you've been paying attention, I want you to raise your hand and, and make this confession. God, you know my heart. I've been struggling in this matter. I want you to help me to focus in on your word and to keep you before my eyes. Raise your hand and say, this is my hand. I'm raising it to God saying, God, I want to change my appetite. I need to change my appetite. Father, you see those who've raised their hands. They're truth tellers. They speak the truth, Father. They acknowledge their fault before you. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would quicken them now and strengthen them now, Lord Jesus, to minister into them by your Holy Spirit grace to help them in their time of need, Father, to keep their minds and their hearts pure before you. I ask that you touch them especially today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you.